Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Good evening. My name is Maud Page and I'm the Acting Deputy Director of Curatorial Collection Development here at the Queensland Art Gallery and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all here tonight. I'd like to begin by respectfully acknowledging the traditional owners of the land upon which we meet. I would like to acknowledge here tonight as well Captain Casper Kreeper, Honorary Consul, Consulate of the Netherlands in Brisbane, Mr. Shinya Mashida, Deputy Consul General, Consulate General of Japan, Queensland, Ms. Addy Dawes, Birch, CEO of the Global Foundation. And I'd like to acknowledge also the support of the Australia-China Business Council, Queensland, and the Australia-Indonesia Business Council, Queensland. I'd like to note the apologies of Ms. Lenine Ford, Chancellor Griffith University, Professor Ian Connor, Vice-Chancellor and President, Griffith University, and our Gallery Director, Chris Sainz, who is caught in another function in our other building at the Queensland Art Gallery. I would also like to acknowledge and welcome you, our audience, to this, to this our final Perspectives Asia for 2013. We have had a wonderful years of, year of invigorating, informative and insightful talks by an amazing group of speakers from a diverse range of fields engaging with change, culture, politics and society in the Asia-Pacific region. It is a great pleasure for us to work again with the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University to bring you this series and I'd particularly like to thank Andrew O'Neill, Director Griffith Asia Institute, and Natasha Berry for their close collaboration with the Gallery's Australian Centre of Asia-Pacific Art, ACAPA, in developing and staging the Perspectives Asia program, now in its ninth year. Perspectives Asia continues to be a hugely important initiative for us, providing a context for our wide-ranging exhibition and cinema programs, profiling Asia and Pacific art. Tonight, as the gallery exhibitions team install a series of major works by leading Chinese artist Sa Kuo Chang in these very spaces that you would have seen as you walked in, we signal the enormous influence and outreach of contemporary Chinese art and we have now the opportunity to turn our attention to China's growing political role within Southeast Asia. It is wonderful to have Steve Howard, a widely acknowledged global strategy advisor and, integ and integrator, to guide us through recent meetings between Chinese President Xi Jinping and President Susila Bambang Judodono in Bali, which culminated in the comprehensive upgrade of the China-Indonesia bilateral relationship. Over the past 30 years, Steve has led the formation and successful execution of strategy for a number of Australian-based private sector organisations, most notably as founding Secretary General of the Global Foundation from 1998 to present, and as Executive Director for the Committee for Melbourne 1989 to 1995, and as Executive Director of the Sydney Tourism Marketing Board from 1987 to 1988. Concurrently, he has served as Vice Chairman for the Global Private Equity Alliance and as Chairman of the Advisory Body for the Australian Network, Australia's international television service. He's a regular speaker at a number of global private sector and think tank events, particularly in China. Mr Howard's presentation this evening is evocatively titled, as you can see on the screen, When Giants Dance, China and Indonesia Step Out Together. He said he thought particularly of the art gallery in thinking up that title, so thank you, we appreciate it. And, we'll ex and this talk will explore the implication of this budding relationship for Australia, 
Asia and the world. Please join me in welcoming Steve Howard. Thank you, Maud, for that very warm introduction. It sounds like I've been around forever. Sometimes I feel that I have. Um, it's a delight for me to be here in Brisbane. I don't get to Brisbane as much as I would like to. And I always note when I come to Brisbane the sense of energy and vitality in the city. And of course tonight, uh, speaking to you in Brisbane, it's just over one year ahead of your city hosting the G20, when the global leaders of the 20 most significant economies will gather in Brisbane to discuss the state of the world. And we'll have something to say about that tonight. Um, I would like to, um, to thank uh, Andrew O'Neill and the Griffith Institute, the, the Asia Institute of Griffith University, rather. Um, I've been an admirer of Andrew's work now for some years and of the work of Griffith University in promoting in and from Queensland to Australia and the world this connectivity with Asia. And so when I was asked to deliver uh, a lecture, I was delighted to accept, and I'm glad I can be here with you. And I must also say to be here with your partners in this beautiful setting in the Gallery of Modern Art, to Ruth and Maud and Russell, thank you very much for your warm welcome. I'd also like to acknowledge the presence of um, one of the members of the board of the Global Foundation, uh, Professor Stuart Gill, who's the principal of Emmanuel College at the University of Queensland, and the chief executive officer of the Global Foundation, Ms. Adie Dawes-Birch, who's just joined us, notwithstanding the vagaries of flight times from Melbourne to Brisbane. Uh, in preparing um, the talk tonight with, as you say, it's an evocative title, um, I, I want to uh, make an acknowledgement of the contribution in particular of Mr Pascal Lamy, uh, who is both a personal friend but also a long-standing friend of the Global Foundation and recently retired as the Director General of the World Trade Organisation after 10 years. Uh, he too shares a great passion about issues of global governance and the weakness of global governance, and I'm grateful to him for some of his very recent work, including a commission uh, that he chaired for Oxford Martin School, uh, and speeches about what we need to do at the global level. And also, I'd finally like to acknowledge Gaya Raghavan from our Secretariat at the Global Foundation for her assistance. Um, I want to talk about three things tonight, if I may. Very simply, we have a world in flux we need a global declaration of interdependence, not independence. Um, it's not my original term. I tried to claim it for myself, but apparently um, it was used some time ago in relation to an Earth Summit uh, by a very distinguished Japanese scholar. But I rather like the idea of pushing for a global declaration of interdependence. And thirdly, I would like to talk briefly about implications for Australia Asia and the world, uh, as you'll see graphically, about trying to help bring some of these pieces together. Um, a world in flux, we all know that. Um, the tectonic plates are shifting, there is a new game emerging, and we perhaps have never seen it before in our lifetimes. And it may be a once in 500 year phenomenon rather than a once in a lifetime phenomenon. Uh, we have a shifting balance of power, that's obvious, and while the United States is and remains uh, the dominant superpower, the dominant force for many years to come, in economic power that balance has shifted and is shifting even as we speak. Um, the US 
is coming to terms with that shift and as are other nations that are needing to rise to fill what we would call um, the shift in the old world of great powers, uh, which still matters and will matter for a long time to come. And I don't mean to demean that, but it will matter less compared to emerging powers. And this graph simply shows you the share of global GDP in purchasing power parity terms between the US and Asia, comparing the years 1980 in the uh, left-hand column to the forecast of 2015. So it's US, Asia, highlighting what you already know, is that we are seeing this shift in front of our eyes in the world, the shift of economic power at least, even if other forms of power are still uh, to be determined. So I think the multipolar world has arrived. Um, I don't think it's coming, and I think that uh, because I do spend quite a lot of time in countries such as China and in other parts of the world, Brazil and Europe and emerging countries like Russia, where I was three times in the second half of last year in the lead-up to their G20 preparations, the multipolar world has arrived, but we still haven't worked out how we accommodate emerging powers who have growing economic and political clout. And on top of that, the range of actors is diverse beyond nation-states. It's not nation-states only who run or determine this multipolar world. It's other forms of actors, multinational corporations, non-government bodies, other non-state actors, even our little modest not-for-profit organisation, which is Australian in character but global in scope. And the Washington Consensus, those decisions that were made after the Second World War to form a, um, a new order of, that led to the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and other institutions, that consensus that is known commonly as the Washington Consensus no longer holds. But we don't yet know and we haven't yet arranged how to move from that to something which is truly multipolar. And Asia, which is why we're here tonight, matters globally, yet um, is still looking for its place in this global order. Uh, which takes me to the topic, the evocative topic, of when giants dance. And in that kind of vacuum about where to move and what's happening, China and Indonesia step out. I was in uh, Bali in the lead-up to the APEC summit a month ago, and then I was in Jakarta following. And President Xi Jinping made an historic visit to Jakarta on the 2nd of October, where he addressed the Indonesian parliament, a first, first to do so. Um, and he made very major commitments from China to Indonesia, including very substantial financial commitments. And he also made very big commitments to the region from Jakarta, uh, I'll come back to talking about the formation of an Asian infrastructure investment bank. This was not actually anticipated by the Chinese that I was with in Bali the next day at an infrastructure financing summit. It caught many people by surprise that China, which has been, if you like, a reluctant leader on the world stage or even at the regional level, would suddenly make such a declaration as a matter of fact, that there would be the formation of an Asian infrastructure investment bank. Indonesia, of course, on the other side, has always been careful in balancing its great power relations. We often spend time in Australia 
agonising over China-US relations and how we can get on with both. I think, I think sometimes we agonise too much in the sense that I spend not only a lot of time in China but a lot of time in the United States. And I think both countries actually run their relationship pretty well. It's quite sophisticated, quite deep. And, of course, coming back to our own thinking about our national strategy, uh, we need to work out how to balance and work with both and not to see it as a kind of zero or either sum game. The Indonesians have a term. I had the privilege of meeting their foreign minister uh, a couple of times in the last year. This form, uh, Marty Natalagawa, who was educated here in Australia, Canberra, um, this term called dynamic equilibrium, where they've been very careful about how they balance. And what Indonesia is very conscious of is that the world has not necessarily given Indonesia the credit and recognition it deserves, not as a middle power, but as a significant emerging power. We, we don't quite know the trajectory of its economy, but it is said that if the current forecasts hold, it will be in the top six world economies. It is a remarkable story. It is a young democracy. It's still finding its way. It has a presidential election next year. President Yudhiyono has been the most gracious leader and very gracious towards our country, Australia. But to see Indonesia and China have this dance together in Jakarta, just ahead of the APEC summit, was fascinating to me. It doesn't, a dance doesn't mean you're going home together, but it means you're out on the dance floor stepping out. It was pretty interesting. And then, of course, you juxtapose that with a few days later, the APEC summit, which was back in Bali, and you had the absence of President Obama, not because he chose to be away, he had to be back in Washington to manage the crisis at home. But this juxtaposition of China with a strong hand saying, we are capital rich, we are committed to the region, we are coming to Indonesia, we're wanting to partner with you and with the region, and then the absence of the US in Bali. And all this is mixed together with Indonesia, in my opinion, running a very good APEC this year. APEC has sort of meandered along. Remember 1994, the Bogor Goals? The Indonesians were very proud of that, the declaration about open trade. APEC's had a kind of funny path over the years, but it came right back into focus, and all credit to President SBY and his government and his team, to run a very good APEC which was quite focused. And one of the themes that was in that was to do with connectivity, as the Indonesians call it. The idea that the region needs to be better connected to itself. Physically, ports, road, air, whatever. I, think, I remember the Foreign Minister, Marty Natalagawa, telling me you couldn't take an aeroplane from Indonesia directly to Papua New Guinea. You know, things like that. Now, linked to connectivity, of course, is infrastructure. A link to infrastructure and what you require to develop a modern economy is what the Chinese president was talking about, this idea of an Asian infrastructure investment bank. This is a kind of, this is a seismic shock to drop this as a, as a major concept. And I can tell you it's still an underformed concept, and that may well be an opportunity, and we'll come back to talk about that. It may well be a good thing because if it's to work as a regional initiative rather than just a Chinese initiative into Indonesia, then others need to be involved. And this goes back to my broader point, although I'm focusing a little bit on China and Indonesia tonight, where we have much attention, we need to see our region in total. We need to understand the broader relations of great countries like Japan and what they mean to places like Australia and other parts of the region. And, of course, we need to take into account other great powers such as the United States. So the underlying point is the dance happened. 
Something was going on. We were in the room. We saw it emerge. It's there to be shaped. And importantly, China is now the host of APEC in 2014. So China is basically saying, uh, we want to make sure that APEC in this current year does useful things and then feeds into Australia about a month later hosting the G20 in Brisbane. So APEC run from China, G20 run from Australia. You can see the potential fit. Takes me to my second point. That in the absence of things working out as well as they should at the global level, global governance is weak. And I'm a fan of the United Nations and all the international systems. I've known, we've worked with many World Bank presidents. We're very close to the current head, and uh, Christine Lagarde, and previous heads of the International Monetary Fund. In fact, it's a funny kind of thing when you're a little organisation working in the world and you somehow manage to keep bumping into and talking to these people and being a kind of informal go-between. But global governance is weak. The G20 and the processes that go with it should be fantastic. I went to Mexico last year for the lead-in to the G20 summit. I saw all the aeroplanes of the leaders on the tarmac. I'm only sorry I couldn't find the photo to show you. It was a very bad shot taken out the window of the aeroplane by me in a high security environment. But here were these, in some cases, very large aeroplanes. The Japanese Prime Minister's jumbo jet, Air Force One, the Chinese jumbo jet, the Russian President's plane, and then, of course, a series of smaller planes, including the Australian Prime Minister, which is sort of appropriate, proportionate. But they're all queued up on the side of this desert tarmac, this desert runway, while the leaders of the 20 biggest economies, 85% of the world's GDP, were meeting together. And what came out of that last year? Less than what you might have hoped for. You know, where was the kind of new global breakthrough? It was managerial, technocratic, it was not leadership. And unfortunately, although I said earlier I had involvement with Russia's G20 lead in, Russia hosted the G20 summit in St Petersburg two months ago, it kind of fell away as well. And what we had at the G20 was the urgent overtaking the important. You had Syria become the issue. Okay, Syria is a really serious issue, but this is meant to be the leaders of the 20 biggest. And these are the, this is the place where you bring the old world and the new world together. The old G7, G8, the North Atlantic, Europe, US, comes together with emerging countries like Russia, Brazil, India, Indonesia, China, etc. With Australia having a seat at the table. And it didn't work as well as it should. So I think we've got a big problem here now, not just in running a beautiful event in Brisbane in November next year. You will. You'll put on a great show. The world will see Brisbane at its best and it will be talked about. It will create a great legacy for years. I, I know that. I'm talking about the careful knitting together of the policy agreements to make big shifts in terms of saying how do we move the world forward together because we need to and global governance is weak. So my second point is we need, we, the world, needs a global declaration of interdependence. Okay? I mean it's self-evident that it does. And Asia, therefore, in the absence of a global declaration, is kind of working in something of a vacuum. And it may well be that this becomes this problem of where's the lack of global leadership becomes an opportunity for Asia to become actually the global leader. And APEC might be the vehicle to do it. So when I talk about moving from an old world order to a new world order, it's not about rebadging. It's about 
New reform global governance arrangements for a multipolar world. And, and it isn't just about, and this is, this is where Pascal Lamy has been talking recently. In his Oxford Commission, which had some of the brightest minds in the world, a lecture he gave last week. This is about the tough stuff of saying, how do nations that have got different value systems actually work out how to work together? This is really, really hard. This is about the West coming to terms with the non-West. This is about understanding that the multipolar world is for real. It isn't just an economic intersection. This is much more fundamental than that. And we haven't had the serious conversations yet, I don't think, not since 1945 and the setting up of the modern UN and the Bretton Woods system. We haven't revisited those conversations to say, how do we organise for the future? Because some things can only be done in a global way. So global values, global inclusiveness, a multipolar world, we're missing it. Um, there's a space to make it happen. Brisbane G20 is an opportunity. It needs governments to do their best, but it needs much more than that. So in the meantime, APEC, perhaps, finding new life under Indonesia, headed for China, can be a more focused way of saying, we, the region, are forming up views that become expounded to become global views. So the word I've been using a lot, and I'll talk a little bit more about Indonesia in a minute, is true partnership. And partnership is... I, I, when I go to uh, Jakarta and I meet with uh, ministers and senior officials and we talk about partnership and they love it, they get it. The, the concept of partnership and trust is really important in Indonesia. It's important everywhere. That you, this is the basis you start from. And then you go on to say, and by that I mean we don't want to have a neo-colonial attitude. They burst out laughing because then they really understand that you're serious and what you mean. And this, by the way, is one of Australia's great gifts our ability to be not a colonial power, not previously and not going forward. So the underlying point, too, is that this is a better role for governments to play working together, but it's an even bigger role for citizens, which is all of us. It's all of us. All of us have links to networks, communities, societies, institutions. The uh, Griffith Zone Network, the Australian Institute for International Affairs is here. Many other are represented. Citizens, by being organised, have a role to play in helping governments to play the role they should play. It isn't about being passive. Okay, let me turn to some implications for Australia, Asia and the world, putting pieces of the jigsaw together. In my opinion, we need to be part of creating a new paradigm for regional and global relations. We need to shape the world through a partnership from where we live starting from, if you like, Brisbane, but from Australia, moving outwards into our neighbourhood, into our region. And that's all of us. It isn't just through official channels, it's through informal channels. The Indonesian ambassador to Canberra, brilliant man, talks about the need to strengthen people-to-people -people links so that when we get the next bump in the road in the bilateral government-to-government -government relationship, there's a kind of shock absorber built in by all the people-to-people -people links that go on. And we've had this wonderfully benign time with President Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono as president the last 10 years. There's no guarantees about how easy it will be with Jakarta going forward. So building in the shock absorbers by strengthening people-to-people -people links through the role of citizens is, to me, a very vital step. I want to show you some photos um, that link back to the work that we in the Global Foundation are involved with. 
And there are four examples of people-to-people -people links and what citizens can do. We, we are a citizen's body. We have lofty names and important people involved in global networks, but it actually all comes out of the citizenry, people like you folks and what you actually believe and do. The Global Foundation is a people's network, okay? Happens to emanate from Australia, but out in the world, variously, when people get it, they love the idea of bringing Australia to bear in this soft power way. So the first photo is of, and I'm sorry it's of another university. Forgive me, Andrew. But this is in Jakarta in February of this year, and I had the privilege of being there because Monash University, whose Vice-Chancellor incidentally happens to be current Chairman of the Board of the Global Foundation, Ed Byrne, it's another example where our citizens' body has the backing of the private sector, we have the university sector and research sector, we have eminent people. It's the cross-section of people coming together. We happen to be led by university vice-chancellor. What's happening here? The vice-president of Indonesia in the red and white gown has just received his honorary doctorate from Monash University. But where? This took place in Jakarta in February. And who's present? Who's in the middle of the vice-chancellor and the vice-president? That's the president of Indonesia. Because in that room, at that most moving ceremony, was the president, former presidents, the cabinet, the elite of Indonesia. It was one of the great soft power moments of this country, and it was not necessarily done by a government. It was done by a university. And all of our universities, in one way, shape or form, have this capability. It just so happened that Monash University did it, and we were intertwined with that visit. The second one is taken in Beijing in 2008. Uh, you remember the member, he's still the active member for Griffith, but Kevin Rudd was then Prime Minister in his first stanza, and he came with us. He was in Beijing on an official visit, and he joined a meeting put together by the Global Foundation, which involved the new Minister for Climate Change of the Chinese government and 40 CEOs from each country talking about clean energy and environment. And China, in April 2008, having one of its first moments on Chinese soil to talk openly about international climate change policy. This was a citizen's body bringing this dialogue between two countries. And by the way, Kevin Rudd, during that dialogue, touched the two flags in front of him on the table and said, world's biggest coal producer, world's biggest coal consumer, if we don't do something about cleaning up coal, the world won't forgive us. Story still to be written. So China's emergence as a good global citizen, we are still working directly with China's Minister for Climate Change on their quite outstanding green growth strategy to put green cities, sustainable cities into China. Five months later, in Washington, at Georgetown University, which is a very special university in the heart of Washington, we were able to convene a three-way meeting between China, the US and Australia on climate change discussion. This wasn't some technical conversation about, you know, adjustment of temp. This was about saying this is a national security conversation. It was behind closed doors in a very famous room where many American presidents have met, and the three parties sat down and showed their cards. We had the three climate ambassadors, the Chinese ambassador to the US, the Australian ambassador to the US, a letter from Prime Minister Rudd supporting it. This was the citizenry at work bringing people together, including governments, to talk about what do we do. And don't ever assume that Australia can't play a role 
in sitting down and talking to big powers. Because sometimes you can, because we did. I love this one. This is a beauty because um, we helped set it up, uh, but we weren't in the room, as it were. Um, the man in the picture, uh, you can see in, the, in both pictures, is now the president of China. Uh, he made a visit to Australia and to Melbourne a few years ago as vice president. And uh, at very short range, uh, we were asked to identify a suitable farm uh, that the vice president could visit. And, of course, it had to be a dairy farm close to Melbourne. Um, these most unlikely photographs about um, visiting the milking of the cows in Melbourne, China has a 20% deficit in dairy requirements at present. Food security for China, as for much of our region, will now be about what they can have grown in other countries and import. To have the Vice President of China visit and see dairy at work uh, was a very important early win. I just use those as examples of saying that citizens collectively or individually, ideally collectively, can actually make a difference. These are six of the brands that our little foundation has created over its 15 years of existence. China I've mentioned, and we were delighted that government upgraded the China relationship to strategic partnership. The Asia-Pacific Roundtable, a brand that we took to Washington, Beijing, Singapore, Sydney, which involved every country in East Asia and the Pacific, including India a brand that stood alive as a way of people talking to each other and had organisations like the World Bank sponsoring the IMF turning up and taking part. In other words, citizen-led approaches to solving great international problems through soft plough diplomacy is alive and well and it has the capacity to grow. An ASEAN dialogue, an India dialogue, our roots were with a European dialogue because we're not about leaving out one part of the world in Latin America, we have one of our former staff members now living in Sao Paulo in Brazil, pushing that forward. Bring people together to talk about these things. I just want to talk briefly before we uh, come to, to a close and to Q&A about some specific work. I did talk at the beginning about the giants dancing Indonesia and China. And I want to illustrate a couple of things that we're actively involved with right now with both Indonesia and China, if I may. The first is in infrastructure. And there are four things briefly listed on the page. But to give you a bit of currency and context, the Vice President of Indonesia, the same man you saw there with the medieval costume getting his honorary doctorate, Vice President Bodiano, one of the great architects of Indonesia's financial reform and opening, is visiting Australia next week. He's going to be in Australia for a week. He's going to be in Perth on Monday, receiving an honorary doctorate from the University of Western Australia, where he studied years ago. He's going to Canberra to ANU to get an honorary doctorate from ANU where he studied years ago. He's already got his doctorate from Monash, but he's coming to Melbourne to speak at Monash. And then he's having lunch with the Global Foundation. And then we're taking part with a forum and then the Premier of Victoria is hosting it. The Indonesian government has had the confidence in our little organisation to say, we need to strengthen the people-to-people -people links. Alongside government-to-government, -government, business to business we need to do that. One of the key areas, remember I talked about connectivity, the need to fix the infrastructure, the request of the Foreign Minister, who's also coming next week, Foreign Minister of Indonesia. So Jakarta, I don't know, has anyone been to Jakarta in recent years? It's a pretty tough city with a long way to go. We like the idea because one of our members is a retiring member of the International Olympic Committee, Kevin Gosper, very distinguished Australian. 
We met last week. He'd just come back from Rio de Janeiro studying the Olympic preparations for Rio for 2016. They've got the World Cup in 2014 and the Olympics in 2016. said to Kevin, if we put a Team Australia together to work with the Governor and Vice-Governor of Jakarta, smart young guys who are trying to get Jakarta fixed up, okay, would you be part of that team? And by the way, could we put the question, in what year will Jakarta bid for the Olympic Games? Because you can't bid for the Olympic Games unless you fix the city up. So there's an inspirational idea about taking Australian know-how to work with Indonesia and Jakarta. Northern Australia. Lots of talk about opening up the north and development and food bowl and what we might do. Isn't it time we talked about that in the context of mirroring it with what Indonesia might do in its eastern provinces? Indonesia actually has a wonderful, wonderful plan for developing the eastern part of the country. It's known as MP3EI, which means, in brief, we know where our key infrastructure corridors need to exist. Is it any wonder that the live cattle trade hit such problems when we hadn't done the underlying fundamental things about how you move an animal from one part to another. We hadn't actually worked together on this stuff. A lot of it was presumed. Um, in China, I mentioned before with the Minister for Climate Change, he was personally patronising work we're doing for Shanghai to be a kind of expo site to show how green growth, green cities, sustainable cities can be developed. That can become a model not just for China but for Asia. We have no choice. We have to have these sustainable cities. We have to find models that haven't existed before. And the pollution levels that poor old Beijing is putting up with at the moment, China can't live with this. We have to find these solutions. And finally, I mentioned earlier the Chinese President's declaration of an Asian infrastructure investment bank. We've been asked to help work with China at official level and unofficial level to say how could this become a genuine regional opportunity that involves not just China and Indonesia but Japan, the US, Australia and others. So in infrastructure, with, with the giants dancing, there's a game to play at both ends. China has enormous capital, Indonesia has enormous needs, other parts of the region, and Australia can be a useful player with know-how, our ability. Those of you who have been involved in the fixing up of some of our cities in the last 20 or 30 years, or going further back. I, I remember fondly Brisbane in the 1988 Expo. People got over it yet? I mean, it was a transformational moment for this city because it was an infrastructural moment for Brisbane that set it up for the next 20, 30 years. That know-how is something we can apply elsewhere. So that's infrastructure. The second example is what we call the road to paradise. It's about food. Our little foundation was heavily involved with the previous government, but in a bipartisan way, and we're working closely with the new government, on preparing a national food plan for Australia, which is really about doing common sense things that hadn't been done properly before, which is to get all the people in the food supply chain, the farmers, the food processors, the, the transport logistics people, the retailers, the exporters, to actually talk to each other and work together. There is now the basis of a very good national food plan for Australia. But guess what? There isn't the basis yet for a good international food plan in our region. So we've been working with Indonesia at the invitation of their government, the Trade Minister, Pat Gita Wirawan, for the last six months intensively to develop a plan whereby instead of Indonesia thinking that it's got to find its food security for its future only inside its borders, it can say, like we can say, we can find our food security in and with each other. 
Now, if we can develop that road, and what's the road to paradise? Paradise is actually making that work in a way that's trusted, that's partnership, where we can rely upon each other to do what we do well. We grow beef pretty well. We grow dairy pretty well. Indonesia does other things much better than we do. But imagine if we could rely upon each other and strengthen and grow together. That can become not only important for both our countries economically, strategically, politically, but it can also be something of a model for Asia. So the road to paradise is the pathway we have to take to find our food security, not from each other, but in and with each other. Now that's what we'll be talking about with the Vice President and his team next week. And it's not just a technical thing about you know, more beef and more dairy, it's about know-how and capacity building. What are we good at? This country built 100 years of agriculture and 200 years of agriculture based upon know-how and capacity building. Imagine if we could focus that to help Indonesia become a more efficient food producer and exporter. And guess what? When you think about what China needs, you look at that fourth corner, that bottom right-hand corner, Asian Food Safety and Security Project. China now has a major food deficit. And we will need the best efforts of Australia and Indonesia combined and elsewhere if China is going to meet its future food needs. So this example of saying cooperation and finding partnership together and security with each other, not at the exclusion of other countries, I'm just using this as a model. Two giants are dancing. China and Indonesia are dancing right now, one month ago. Australia has a little part to play and we're already in the game. It does not preclude everything else that's being done or should be done with other great countries. In fact, yesterday I met with the chairman of the Australia-Japan Business Council, Sir Rod Eddington, a brilliant Australian. And they are doing wonderful work from Japan to Indonesia with Australian involvement. This ability to actually get below the rhetoric of saying abstract meetings, high-level leaders come together, put out statements and say, let's actually do stuff together, but we do it on the basis of trust, partnership and working towards common understanding and values. This is the kind of citizen-led path to the future for this country. The final point is education. And we all know, I mean, I told you about Indonesian cabinet ministers, just list them all who had their education in Australia and have great memories of it. Um, the reverse Colombo plan, we need our young people, and perhaps they're not so young, to get out and study and learn in Asia. There's still a presumption on our part, there's still an arrogance, there's still a disposition that you scratch the surface and I don't think we've worked hard enough. I don't think our companies have worked hard enough. I don't think our people have worked hard enough to actually be in Asia and to be better connected and to better understand. So to have an education process where we're not only taking know-how but we're learning from deep cultures. We talk about it but we need to be more systematic. So I would like to see our universities I mean, I know that Griffith, for example, already has partnerships with two or three universities in Indonesia. Most of our unis do. I don't think we as a society or a community understand how much of this goes on, but how big this could become as Australia being a kind of reverse training platform to help Asia's universities, particularly Southeast Asia and in particular Indonesia, to strengthen up what they can do. And I was with the Indonesian ambassador last week and he said they would love to see this as a priority. They would love to see us helping them, not just in the university sector, but also in developing their, um, their vocational training sector where they are relatively uh, weak in terms of certification qualifications. It doesn't take much to make this step. 
I just recapped The Road to Paradise because it's a lovely title and it's the big game in food. So it's about a partnership across all the sectors, the supply chain, if you like, from where a beef cow is bred and grown and then when it's shipped and fattened and killed in an abattoir and then sent to a market, one example. Strategic know-how to build capacity, to actually build the skills, not just at farming level but in a very sophisticated marketing, branding way. And also building supply chains in our north to work with Indonesia's eastern provinces. It seems obvious, doesn't it? And you kind of wonder, bits of it are, I think the point is that it's not that this stuff is not being done, it's that bits of this are being done, but they're not often joined up in a way that says, ah, that's the whole picture. And that's the opportunity, is not to, not to say, leave that out or leave that behind, but to find ways to bring together many bits that are already happening. To recap and close, my three points. We have a world in flux. Asia's emergence as a global actor and potentially a global leader is right now. Uh, I think that's an uncertain proposition in the absence of some global framework, what I call a global declaration of interdependence. And Australia, perhaps more than any other nation, can help bring East and West together towards a true partnership in that regard. That's the possibility of the G20 if we set our minds to it. If we actually said we, can, we are a nation of Western origin here in Asia, we can actually play a unique role. And you know what? I hear and see senior people in many of these emerging nations calling out for this to happen. They don't want to be left at the fringes of these international meetings to watch the old powers parading and talking to each other and they're sitting back in the corner. They want to be in the room in the dialogue. We can play an important... It's, it's not about us. It's not about Australia. It's about what you cause to happen by bringing others together. So the implication is to use smart power, soft power, mixed together with smart power to build deep and meaningful partnerships between Australia and Asia and Asia and the world. I encourage you all to learn more about what we do in the Global Foundation in our modest way with high ambitions but I encourage you all in whatever you do in your fields of life to pursue these ambitions. Thank you. Well, thanks very much, Stephen. Thanks, everyone, uh, this evening. My, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Andrew O'Neill. I'm director of the Griffith Asia Institute, uh, and it's my uh, privilege to give the vote of thanks tonight to, uh, to, to, to Steve Howard. Uh, look. It was mentioned earlier that this is the final Perspectives Asia for 2013, and that's true. Uh, we're now into our ninth year, um, almost hard to believe. Next year is our tenth year. Um, next year is going to be a big year for Brisbane, we all know. 2014, we hold the G20. Steve alluded to that in his presentation. We're going to sit down and work out a fantastic uh, program of events for, for next year with our Perspectives Asia uh, series, because really when we think about the G20, in a sense, it's really a story about the rise of Asia, and, and Steve did cover two of Asia's uh, giants this evening, Indonesia and China, and you know, these two countries are really, along with India, uh, Japan and South Korea, really kind of at the heart of, of, of Asia's presence in, in the G20. So Perspectives Asia in 2014 promises to be even bigger and better than it was in 2013. Uh, just to follow up on that, I'd, I'd really like to convey my sincere thanks to, to Maud, Ruth and, and Russell and uh, to the director of the Queensland Art Gallery, Chris Sains, for supporting and, and, and really providing 
uh, a wonderful, uh, seamless partnership for Griffith in, in running the Perspectives Asia uh, series. And, you know, as, as Maud said at the beginning, we're now into our ninth year, so that I think says something about the, the longevity and uh, the strength of, of the partnership and the alliance we have. Um, you know, Steve talked tonight, covered a range of issues, and I think when they coined the term visionary, I think they have Steve in mind, um, and strategic as well, being able to uh, cover a range of, of big picture issues. I think often when we look at uh, large powers in our region from Australia's vantage point, we tend to fixate on the US-China uh, relationship, and we kind of overlook the relationships, uh, particularly in the bilateral sphere, uh, such as those between China and Indonesia, and anyone who's travelled to Jakarta, anyone who's travelled to Indonesia will testify to the fact that you know China does have a large presence in Indonesia, both in terms of its uh, uh, diaspora population, but also in terms of Chinese economic investment, which is you know really palpable when you when you travel uh, when you travel around uh, when you travel around Jakarta. And of course, from China's perspective, Indonesia is a critical partner in the region. China interacts with ASEAN. That's true. But I think it's also fair to say that China sees very much sees Indonesia as primus into Paris when it's engaging in, in Southeast Asia. And, and it does, in a sense, I think, treat, uh, treat Indonesia as a, a, you know, a special case when it's dealing with, with, with Southeast Asia. So the, the bilateral relationship is, is critical, uh, and obviously it has implications for, for Australia as well. Um, as I said earlier, we're going to have a range of exciting events in, in 2014 uh, with Perspectives Asia. And just in closing tonight, I'd like to thank Steve very much for a fantastic presentation. Um, uh, and I'd like to present Steve with um, what I know, because it's very heavy, is a very significant gift. So thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.